What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. How about this? Friday, Advent, Christmas, we've got it all going, and a great radio program, in my humble opinion, called a communion right here on EWTN Radio, the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, by golly, we are here to answer that question, and we are live on this uh, Friday just before the third uh, week of Advent begins. So uh, if you have any questions uh, that you would like to get answered, here's our phone number, 833 833- 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always uh, send us an email. The address is ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery, uh, owner and wearer of probably the most amazing Christmas sweater I have ever seen. It is just Outrageous, fun, fantastic, and goofy all at the same time. He is our producer. We're very glad that he's not only uh, wearing it, but it, that he's here. Also, uh, <laughs> Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, please uh, put that in the uh, comments box there on social media. And then Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Great. What do you think of that sweater? I'm, I'm trying to turn down the volume because it's so loud. I think I can it pick is, it up from here. It is a bit piercing. Yes. And but the, 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 the sequins illumine the studio enough. I don't know that we need these overhead lights. Anymore. We may have to turn those puppies yeah. off. Absolutely. So we're going to begin here with an email, uh, a very poignant email. This came in yesterday from Barry in West Virginia. And I'll bet he's not the only person and feeling this. Barry says, I'm feeling somewhat discouraged. I'm a new Catholic, and there seems to be lots of things I need to believe in, and I'm having trouble really believing. I feel fake, like I'm just imitating what other people are doing, but not having confidence in how it helps in the walk with Christ. Thanks, Barry in West Virginia. Yeah, thanks, Barry. I really appreciate the question. So I think I have a number of things to to offer here. One of them is that becoming a Catholic, you don't have to understand every doctrine of the Catholic faith to become Catholic. You simply have to affirm that you believe what the Church teaches to be revealed by God. Okay, And it's very specific what the Church says. I believe everything that the Catholic Church declares to be revealed by God. Now, there are many things that Catholics believe that the Church does not say are revealed by God. And so they're not included in that affirmation. And when you first become Catholic, you might get confused because Catholics will come and assert all kinds of theological things at you about their favorite devotion or their favorite saint or or their favorite spirituality or their favorite visionary or their favorite private revelation. And you may feel overwhelmed by this this, uh, massive material and you Mm -hmm. may feel some obligation to hold. Understanding you need to distinguish all of that from what the Church actually says you have to believe, which is restricted to the dogmatic content of the religion. You have to believe the dogmas of the faith. And those dogmas are arranged hierarchically into a hierarchy of truths. 
And so that doesn't mean that one is more true than another. It means that some are more central to the act of faith than others. So, for example, um, uh, the doctrine of God is about as central a doctrine as you can get. Everything else sort of hangs on that. Uh, the incarnation of Christ is uh, his sinless life and his atoning death and resurrection. I mean, these are the kerygma, the message of Jesus and what he did for us and his teaching. This is the, the heart and soul of Catholicism. And that's really where your uh, your primary theological and devotional interest needs to lie on the relationship with Christ, the imitation of Christ, the obedience of Christ's commands, uh, living the life of the sacraments to grow in holiness. That's really where your focus is. And there may, you may be feeling pressure from Catholic friends of yours to affirm or practice things that may be good in themselves, but they're not mandatory for Catholics. And I would, I would encourage you to, to learn the distinction between dogma and theological opinion, and uh, or, or say liturgy on the one hand and private devotions on the other, so that you know what it is you actually have to focus in on and those things that you might, you might dispense with. Um, uh, uh, there's nothing wrong, also, I should add. You said you, you sort of feel like you're following along and not sure you know, how confident you are. There's nothing wrong with following along. So if, if it does come to a matter of the dogmatic content of the faith, something you really are obligated to believe, uh-huh. the act of faith doesn't require that you have a particular kind of affective response. And so there may be a doctrine that right now sort of leaves you cold. That's okay. That's perfectly fine. You don't, you don't have to have a particular emotional engagement um, as you live the faith and practice it and celebrate the, 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 the liturgical calendar, these things may begin to impress themselves more upon your moral imagination. That's part of growing in the Catholic faith, and that's all right, but you don't have to have that effective sense right now. In terms of how they, uh, different aspects of the faith might help in your walk with Christ, everything in the faith helps us by helping us to imitate the charity of Jesus. And so my recommendation to you is to Approach every topic like this with the question, what does this have to do with growing in the love of Christ? So let's say, for example, maybe you're not connecting so much with the Church's uh, Marian doctrine, for example. That'd be a common thing that converts might struggle with. Well, the way to approach that is to say, okay, well, how then does Mary uh, image Christ? How does my devotion to Mary present to me the mystery of Christ? Just bring that reference point to bear on every devotional or theological question, and then now you have the key to how you can integrate that into your spirituality. Very good. And uh, Barry in West Virginia, we hope that's helpful for you. If you would uh, like to send us an email for a future show, we're ready for you. The address ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Before we go to break, I want to uh, add a little clarification here on our producer Charles's sweater. It is an award-winning sweater. This was the 2023 Theology on Tap Birmingham's annual ugly sweater contest. But I would not call this an ugly sweater. Is it an amazing sweater? Yes, it is definitely amazing. Uh, you know, blinding? Sure. Uh, but not ugly. Let's let's uh, keep it polite here. So we're very glad Charles wore that to work today. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Do you have a question for Dr. David Anders? It's a Friday, and phones tend to really fill up quickly on Friday. So my uh, personal recommendation is, if you've got that question in hand, in mind, Call us now, 833-288-EWTN. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this uh, Friday afternoon with Dr. David Anders on EWTN. 
It's called The Communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Calls are coming in right now, but there's a line available for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We're going to get to the phones in just a second here. Uh, Do you have access to EWTN's Vatican Bureau? By golly, you do. You can now watch all of the important events from Rome even if you don't have access to a TV. Using the latest technology, we have made it possible to watch the latest news from the Holy See, all delivered directly to your home via live streams. You can watch right now on EWTN's YouTube channel. Also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and X. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning here with Karen, a first-time caller from Chattanooga, watching us on YouTube. A blessed Advent to you, Karen. What's on your mind today? Yes. Um, my question is um, about plenary indulgences and, um, and atonement for sins and mortification. Can, how, can you possibly really make up for those sins that you've committed, serious mortal sins, so that you can avoid purgatory? Because how do you know if you've done enough? And how do you know where you stand, I guess. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Uh, as to the first, is it possible to do sufficient penance that you can avoid the penalty of purgatory and go straight to heaven when you die, even if you've sinned mortally and gravely? The answer to that question is yes. And the proof of that would be in the canonized saints themselves, many of whom lived dissolute and wicked lives and turned them around and lived holy lives and went straight to heaven when they died. Yeah. So uh, the example of St. Augustine, I think, is a particularly helpful one. If you've never read his confessions, you can see what it looks like when someone turns from a life of sin and self-indulgence to a life of holiness and then goes straight to heaven. Um, uh, How can you know where you stand? You can't. You can't. That's a dogma of the faith, actually, that we we can't have certainty that we're in the state of grace. And we certainly can't uh, can't pre-know. Uh, what the verdict will be on the day of judgment. So we don't know that. What we do know is where grace is offered. We know what the conditions of eternal life are. We can have a kind of uh, moral certainty that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing right now. Uh, you know, people don't sin mortally by accident, right? So I mean, you're you're conscious of when you have when you are when you are practicing something that is gravely wrong that you know to be gravely wrong. You know what you're up to. Of course. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't, if you're not doing that and you're doing what you're supposed to be, you know, stay in communion with the church and pray and, uh, you know, make a good faith effort to love your neighbor and, and so forth, then, then you have a—you don't have certainty, but you have hope. All right. And a reasonable hope. Yes, indeed. Karen, we hope that's helpful for you. Thanks so much for your call from Chattanooga. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. It's called a communion with Dr. David Andrews on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Maria is a first-time caller from Washington, also watching us today on YouTube. Blessed Advent to you, Maria. What's on your mind today? Thank you, Dr. Andrews, for having me on the show. Uh, let's pretend I die right now. Catholic says I'm going to heaven, but the Bible says Jesus will pick us up after he comes. How will I get to, um, how is he going to pick me up if I'm already in heaven? Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Well, it's a little bit more complicated than, than the way you depicted it. So what the Catholic Church teaches is that when you die, uh, that your soul is separated from your body, 
and your soul can be in one of three conditions. It could be in the vision of enjoying the vision of God, uh, it could be in purgatory, or it could be in hell, separated from God. And that at the end of time, your physical body will also be raised and body and soul reunited. And so there, there are a lot of passages in the New Testament about you know the Lord taking us when he comes, and they're really that with reference to the resurrection of the body and that culmination of of the eschaton of the end of time. So th- th- that that aspect that you mentioned is correct, but it happens at the end of time when dry comes back. But the question of what happens to the soul in the intermediate period is is really where the the the, the discussion lies here. Now, I would be freely admit that the Bible is fairly quiet on the question of what happens to the soul in the intermediate condition. There's only a few passages that really come, that would bear on this. Um, so, so one of them would be the appearances of saints and holy people uh, to uh, the people of God on earth before the end of time. So think about the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus recognizes Moses and Elijah. Well, you know, where were those guys? Well, they're with God somehow. I mean, the Bible's ambiguous about that, but they're conscious. There's some kind of conscious condition that they're in. Think about... Uh, the appearance of the prophet Jeremiah to Judas Maccabeus in 2 Maccabees chapter 15. He shows up, right? He communicates with them. There's something going on there. There's mm. some kind of intermediate state. Mm-hmm. Um, think about uh, the book of Revelation chapter 5 that talks about the saints in heaven praying for us on earth and offering our prayers. Uh, if they're offering our prayers, then we're talking about the, their present condition. I mean, the, the prayers of the, of the church militant right now are being are being uh, taken up to heaven by in, the, in a conscious way by the saints in heaven. So there's a lot of passages that suggest a, an intermediate condition. St. Paul seems to have expected that in his own case when he said, you know, I'm kind of torn because I want to stay here on earth and, and do good for the church, but if I die, I get to depart and be with Christ. So there's an expectation that uh, there's an intermediate state where he could go and be with Jesus. Uh, but this was a controversial question in Christian history, and, and there's always been a, a, a position in the Christian Church, one that the, that, that the magisterium ruled out, that there is no conscious existence until the resurrection of the dead, that after you die, you kind of go to sleep, and then Jesus wakes you up at the end of time. Um, that position was alternately called soul sleep, or the big fancy word for it is psychopanachia. Wow. Right. And, uh, and believe it or not, there was actually a medieval Catholic pope who erroneously held that opinion. Pope John XXII believed in the doctrine of soul sleep. Did, he denied that the saints uh, have the vision of God immediately upon death. Now, he was a minority opinion, and all the, the Catholics of his day said, uh, Mr. Pope, you got that one wrong. And he did change his opinion before he died, recanted that. And it, it wasn't a dogma, it was just his theological opinion. And so the subsequent pope, Benedict XII, had to issue an infallible declaration. He issued a, a bull called uh, Benedictus Deus that defined the doctrine that the saints can, in fact, see God uh, when they die before the resurrection from the dead. Um, but that's how it works out. There you go. Thank you so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Lines are open for you at 833-288-EWTN. If you've got a question in mind, this would be a great time to call. 833 833- 288-3986. Patricia listening in Dallas on the great Guadalupe Radio. Hey there, uh, Patricia. Blessed Advent to you. What's on your mind today? Blessed Advent to you, too. Um, I have a question. I came across a history assignment where it starts with uh, describing um, the uh, uh, Crusades. Uh, that it was actually said that the Crusades were started by Christians. And I went through the whole assignment to see, um, I happen to be a school teacher, that's why I'm um, 
you know, I came across this. So uh-huh, uh-huh. I went through the whole assignment to see if the word Catholic was there, and I did it. It just says Christians. I do know that Catholics are Christians, of course. However, this the the, the beginning of the presentation was uh, uh, 1093, I believe, so there were no other Protestants. So it's, it's, is this, uh, I, I guess my question is, shouldn't the word Catholic be there? Oh, yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. I mean, if you're talking about uh, Christians in the 11th century in the West, you are talking about Catholics. Yeah. So it's fairly clear. I mean, and, and you know, I, I'm perfectly comfortable as a Catholic referring to myself as a Christian or talking about the Christian church or yes. a Christian movement or a Christian crusade or mm-hmm. whatever you have. It. I mean, it's a perfectly legitimate adjective. Yeah. So there you go. Patricia, thanks so much for your call. Uh, Mickey is watching us on Facebook today. Mickey says, I would like to know the parts in the Old Testament where the Holy Mass is prefigured. So here are some. Here are some parts. Uh, One would be uh, the offering of bread and wine that Abraham brought to Melchizedek. Yes. Um, Another would be the manna in heaven that God rained down upon the Israelites. That's one that Jesus references specifically. Um, Of course, the Passover feast would be the preeminent uh, prefigurement of the Eucharist Mm -hmm. in in, um, in the Old Testament, as well as the institution of the showbread in the temple. Um, There are probably others, uh, but that will do for the time being. Uh, There are some references I would give you to look more deeply into this question. One, uh, a friend of EWTN, Tom Nash, Yes. Um, has written a book called The Biblical Roots of the Mass, mm. and you can get an entire book-length uh, treatment of the subject. You might also look at Brant Petrie's book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. A couple of great sources for you there. Mickey O. watching us on Facebook. Thanks so much for your uh, question today. Call to Communion. Our phone number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Chris is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Chris says, a Lutheran friend asked me how long 40 hours devotion has been practiced. I had a brain freeze at the time. Please help out. Yeah, so my understanding is that even in uh, the early modern period, St. Charles Borromeo um, spoke of the 40 hours devotion as being ancient. So it was ancient with respect to Charles Borromeo, who's wow. an early modern character. So okay. a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that, that's great. Here's one now from uh, JB, an email that came to us. Dr. Anders, my request is for a good friend of mine who was wrongly accused and imprisoned. He is a saint in my estimation and is doing great things for his fellow prisoners as he seeks release. His son has become quite enthralled with Eastern Orthodoxy, not in communion with the Catholic Church. My friend is looking for a book or two or three that does a great job of explaining the split. What would you recommend? Aiden Aiden Nichols, Rome and the Eastern Churches. Ah, one-stop shop? One-stop shop. It's all there. Okay, JB, thanks so much uh, for your question today. We have this one now from John. Dr. Anders, you often refer to Matthew 28.20 in an attempt to disprove sola scriptura by stating, quote, Jesus never wrote anything down. Well, he may not have written it himself, but someone had to have done so. Otherwise, we'd have no way to know what he commanded. Where is the so-called sacred tradition documented from the time of Christ? Yeah, thanks. Okay, so there's a massive confusion here in this question concerning what I attempt to establish by pointing to Matthew 28. Here is the question that I want to answer. 
Did Christ make any provision for the authoritative transmission of the Christian faith? That's the question I'm answering. Did uh-huh. Jesus give us any instructions about how to know the content of the Christian faith? And my contention is that he did. What Jesus left us was the teaching church that he established. He gave a specific commission to authorized individuals to teach the tradition that he had communicated, his oral tradition, his oral teaching and his example, and to pass it down uh, to, you know, to future generations. So the second part of your question was, where is the evidence? Was that the question? Where is the evidence of the tradition? Yeah, like, the, way, the way he said it was, where is the so-called sacred tradition documented from the time of Christ? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so one place that is documented is in the Scriptures. Right? The scriptures refer to an antecedent tradition. The, the, script, the, the scriptural authors are conscious that there is an oral teaching of Christ that predates their own writing. Um, so this passage that I cited, for one, is evidence of that. Another one would be St. Paul when he says, The tradition that I receive from the Lord I hand on to you, namely that on the night he was betrayed he took bread and broke it and gave thanks and said, This is my body, you know, take it, eat, and so forth. So when Paul references the liturgy, he references the elements of the Eucharist, he is speaking of something that the Corinthians already knew and already practiced. Right? They didn't start celebrating the Eucharist when Paul wrote. Right. Right. Uh, no Christian community did. They, they, they had the Eucharist from the beginning. Paul writes about the Eucharist as something that they're already doing, and for that matter, misunderstanding, and something that was handed on from the Lord by way of sacred tradition. Okay. So, so we, there are references to the tradition in the Scriptures, but there are plenty of other places that reference the tradition as well. So you can find the, the, the early tradition of the Apostles referenced, say, in, uh, in the Didache. You mm-hmm. can find them in the letters of Ignatius of Antioch. You can find them in pretty much all the second century fathers. Irenaeus, uh, a formerly Catholic writer like Tertullian, uh-huh. um, uh, the Shepherd of Hamas, uh, Clement of Alexandria. I mean, you, you go go sort through the standard second century literature on Christianity. You're all going to refer to, uh, you know, a great textbook that would address these kinds of questions would be by the Anglican J.N.D. Kelly, his book, Early Christian Doctrine. Very good. John, thanks for your email. Call to communion here on EWTN. Still time for your call at 833-288-EWTN. Bobby sent this email. When John the Baptist baptized, did the people he baptized get the Holy Spirit? I ask this because after Jesus ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit. What exactly did John's baptism do, and did it remove original sin? Um, yeah, thanks. I, I appreciate the question. So the baptism of John is distinct from Christian baptism. It was not uh, an intrinsically efficacious sacrament the way Christian baptism was. It did not uh, uh, ex opere operato communicate sanctifying grace or the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know what modern Southern Baptists think about baptism? They think that baptism is a merely symbolic act whereby I, I gesture my determination to follow Christ and amend my life. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what John the Baptist meant by his baptism. Okay. So while what the Baptists believe about baptism is wrong with respect to Christian baptism, it's actually fairly similar to what John the Baptist thought, right? That this was a, this was a baptism of repentance indicating one's determination to, to follow the moral path and to, and to await the kingdom of God. But he himself said, one is coming after me, the thong of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There we go. All right, Bobby, uh, thanks so much for your email. By the way, if you'd like to send us an email for a future show, we're ready to get it. Here's the address, ctc at ctc at 
EWTN.com. In a moment, we're going to be talking with Robert, a first-time caller from Houston, also Jerry in Cleveland, and uh, looks like a couple of lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. It is not too late. Give us a call, 833-288-3986. So what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. Do stay with us. It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Still time for your phone calls at 833-288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. 833-288-3986. Hey, congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, Northern Apostle Radio. That is in Marquette, Michigan. They are celebrating nine years with us. So congratulations to Faye and Tim Presley and everybody at WNOA from your friends here at EWTN Radio. All right, back to the phones right now for Robert, a first-time caller from Houston, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Uh, I believe that is um, AM 1430. Robert, what's on your mind today? Sir, I'm looking to understand a belief that I recently came upon. I was looking for a biblical definition of the word begotten in regard to the words Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father. I came upon a quotation. This is what I want to ask about. It said, the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary. I had never heard that belief before. And I'm just wondering where it comes from. It doesn't seem to jive or go along with Jesus' teaching of God the Father, where he would go out in the wilderness and pray to God the Father. Even when he sent the Holy Spirit, he didn't say, I'm going to send to you the Spirit of Truth, the Holy Spirit, God my Father. You know I got you. Um, I'm with you, Robert. Let me let me try to unpack this for you. Okay. So first of all, the, the word conception, or to conceive here, that we find in the Apostles' Creed, we find the phrase conceived by the Holy Spirit. The same concept is expressed in the Nicene Creed, not by the word conceive, but the word um, incarnate. So Jesus was incarnate by the Holy Spirit. and And so what that means in either case is simply that the process by which Mary became pregnant uh, was supernaturally caused by the Spirit's agency. Mm. Right Now, that is something different when we're talking about Christ who is eternally begotten of the Father. We're not talking about his conception in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's not the, that's not the begetting that we're talking about. When we say that the, Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father—actually, we say the Son is eternally begotten of the Father— we're talking about the eternal generation of the of the second person within the eternal trinity. So this isn't a this isn't a conception or a begetting in time. This is an eternal act of begetting that is internal to the blessed trinity. Um, and and the reason that we make that statement is because in the fourth century there was a, a heretic named Arius 
who made the claim that Jesus was not fully God, he was not completely God, that he was a creature and had been made, that God had created Jesus as a creature, the way he would create you or me or an elephant or an angel. And he thought that Jesus was an exalted creature, but a creature nonetheless. And so the Nicene Council wanted to emphasize that the relationship of, of Father to Son in the Blessed Trinity is not the relationship of a creator to creature. Um, and so they needed a word that could describe a procession where the Father is the, is the source, but the source of something that happens eternally, not doesn't have a beginning in time. And so they settled on the word beget, because that is the way that a father is related to the, to the generation of a son. Okay. It's a, any kind of language that we use is infelicitous because it's drawn from human experience, and there's nothing analogous, perfectly analogous, between the relationship of the eternal father to the eternal son is different from the relationship of a human father to a human son. But they couldn't come up with a better word. So beget is what they used. As right? close as we could get. As close as we could get, right? And so you should, you should dismiss from your mind any kind of biological imagery associated with begetting and just understand that this is the word that is meant to describe the nature of the eternal relationship between the eternal father and the eternal son. Now, the process by which the human nature of Christ, hypostatically united to his divinity, of course, was conceived within the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, that's a different thing. That's empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not when Jesus, Jesus does not become the Son of God at the Incarnation. He becomes a man at the Incarnation, but he's eternally the Son of God. Okay, and Robert, a great question, though. Uh, thank you so much for checking in from Houston. All right, we're going to go from uh, Texas to Ohio and talk with uh, Jerry now in Cleveland, listening on AM 1260, The Rock. Hey there, Jerry, a blessed Advent to you. What's on your mind today, sir? Yeah. Hi there, Tom and Dr. Anders. Thanks for taking my call here. Um, with your extensive knowledge and background of the Catholic religion and other denominations, in your opinion, do you believe that the Ark of the Covenant is still in existence somewhere, um, lay hidden, waiting to be found? Or do you think it was destroyed in a war of biblical proportion? And what power did that ark contain that could essentially take down a mountain or uh, destroy an army? And I'll listen to your response. Thank you. Yeah, okay. thanks. Okay, so first of all, I really have no dog in this fight whatsoever at all, and it would make very little difference to me one way or the other if archaeologists someday said, hey, we think we found the remnants of the Ark of the Covenant, or if they don't, it really—nothing hangs on that question for me religiously, Okay, uh, because— the Ark of the New Covenant is the Blessed Virgin Mary, and she's very much still around, right? So my, my, my orientation is not to the, the, the temple in Jerusalem or to the tabernacle of the Ark the Israelites carried. It's to the incarnate Lord born uh, in the womb of the Blessed Virgin. And whatever we might find in the way of archaeology is, uh, is of historical interest to me only and has no eschatological significance. Um, I, I definitely think that the Ark is not either at Universal Studios or in a crate someplace in a, in a federal warehouse. Or in right? northern Kentucky. Or in northern Kentucky. Okay. Definitely this is not there by okay. any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> and so, uh, although Steven Spielberg is uh, good at making blockbuster films, you bet. Uh, sometimes he plays fast and loose with the biblical narrative. And yeah. this would be one of those instances. Because okay. having seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, people may walk away from the film with the idea well, actually, they just make this up. I mean, the, the Harrison Ford character, Indiana Jones, in that film says, well, the Bible says that anybody who carries the ark before them will be victorious in battle. The Bible says no such thing. <laughs> <laughs> There's absolutely nothing like that in Scripture whatsoever at all, 
right, at all. And in fact, the biblical narrative shows that people were always trying to carry the ark for victory in battle and then getting the pants knocked off of them because they were being disobedient to God. The ark as such had no intrinsic power, right? It was just a, 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 it was a symbol of their, of their covenantal unity with God, but when they broke that covenantal unity, they, they stopped having God on their side, and they started losing battles left and right. Yeah, okay. Hey, Jerry, thanks so much uh, for your call today. Appreciate hearing from you. Uh, what a great station that is to AM 1260, The Rock in Cleveland. A question here from T.A. watching us on YouTube this afternoon. He says, uh, he or she says, my question is, why is God not taking care of all the good people? Sometimes I believe in God, and then other times I don't want to believe that God really exists since bad things happen all the time. Well, T.A., you're in really good company. You're in really good company because some of the holiest and most important saints of the tradition have felt exactly like you do. Uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta who I think is you know, widely regarded as one of the holiest, if not the holiest saint of the 20th century, clearly the most famous saint, and lived a life of extraordinary charity. Uh, we now know, after her death, from her post-mortem writings that she shared with her spiritual director, that she lived for decades in a state of spiritual darkness, uh, feeling sometimes like there was no God at all, yeah, and was quite yeah. bereft of hope or any kind of sensible consolation about the presence of God. Um, uh, the most popular saint, who was not herself a 20th century character, but was popular in the 20th century, um, Therese of Lisieux, a doctor of the church. That means that the magisterium has decided that she is a, uh, an authoritative guide to Catholic thinking, um, also struggled with the question of whether or not there was a god. And in moments of darkness in her own path, was strongly tempted to atheism. Uh, the Bible itself endorses the sentiment, or at least it, it permits the sentiment, it expresses the sentiment, the lament uh, of those who question whether there's a God in the face of suffering. Psalm 88. If you have never read Psalm 88, go dig out your Bible and read Psalm 88. It is the cry of a person faced with suffering and evil who says, there seems to be no God. There seems to be no God. Amen. That's it. No resolution, just just the statement of the lament, and then you know, sayonara. Yeah. Uh, the entire book of Ecclesiastes seems to represent this kind of sentiment—a a sort of lament at what appears to be the meaninglessness of life in a godless universe. That's in the Bible. Yeah. Now, the Catholic position is: if something lands in the Bible, it was there because by God's design that the Holy Spirit put it there. So the Holy Spirit saw fit to put at least two texts in sacred Scripture. That, that give voice to, to atheistic agonies. So to, to question whether there is a God in the face of evil does not put you outside the mainstream of Catholic faith and life. Uh, now, you know, in the case of Mother Teresa, what she did was keep on keeping on. And though she questioned God, she saw the person of Jesus, who for us is God incarnate. This is God in the flesh as the kind of human life she wanted to live, that she thought was most noble and most worthy. And so she committed herself to the Christian path, even in that kind of darkness. And I think that's the proper response. Now, you know, personally, in my own life, I, uh, I mean, I have had these kind of thoughts. We all have these kind of thoughts. I, I recognize that in the Catholic doctrine of God, there is, I won't call it an ambiguity, I'll call it a kind of tension, there is language about God that stresses 
the intimacy, the paternal care, the love, the, the personality of God, um, and encourages us to relate to God as a child would to his father. And for me, that would be a, a relationship of intimacy, trust, and love, and, and warmth. But at the same time, at the same time, there's a strong tradition in the Catholic faith, particularly in the theological and mystical tradition, of underscoring the mystery of God, the 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 alien character of God, the ways in which God is unlike uh, any kind of human analogy, including that of a father. Um, probably the premier uh, exemplar of that way of theology is Dionysius the Areopagite, mm. uh, champion of what's called apophatic or negative theology, uh, the view that, that we can't know what God is, we can only know what he's not, and he's not an awful lot of things, right? And so when you take away all the things that he isn't, you're left with kind of a big gaping hole of, of I don't know, right? Yeah. And and for me personally, this is not this isn't the case for everyone, but for me personally, when I am deeply suffering, if I try to only focus in on the more paternal and anthropomorphic visions or images of God, then I can't reconcile my experience of suffering or the evil in the world because I can't wrap my head around why a human-like father would permit such things. That's when I tend to go the other way. I tend to push further into the apophatic tradition, into the darkness, into the mystery of God and the ways in which God is very unlike any kind of human analog, and and uh, think of God more in terms of the source of my moral conscience, right? The, the, my ability to recoil in the face of evil, um, my my yearning for the true, the good, and the beautiful. But I find God as the source and origin of those sentiments, of those dispositions, of those realizations, um, and uh, and otherwise leave the question of God's essence or nature. Um, undecided, right, and and have and, and push into mystery and, and recognize that that too is a very legitimate path to God. Now, when you do that, when you embrace the mystery of God, the darkness of God, the unknowing of God, one of the positive effects in terms of your own spirituality is that I think you become far more compassionate, uh, far less likely to uh, uh, say wear your dogma on your shirt sleeve and and try to beat other people over the head with yeah, it. Yeah. Um, Pope. Pope Benedict wrote that this kind of darkness uh, can be an occasion for us to unite ourselves to the 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 suffering Christ in his cry of dereliction on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm-hmm. And so there is a there can be a deeply purifying element to this kind of spiritual anguish, making us more compassionate, more understanding, um, less dogmatic in a in, in the negative sense of the term, dogmatism. Sure, sure. And, uh, and so I, I wouldn't—you uh, don't necessarily have to run from these emotions, is what I'm telling you. T.A., thank you so much uh, for your question today. We do appreciate hearing from you. It's called a communion here on EWTN. This will be last call for your call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Well, we are putting the finishing touches on the 48 hours of Christmas. This is something we've been doing for on, on EWTN Radio for some years now. It's quite a tradition around here. You can join us all day on Christmas Eve day and all day on Christmas Day. We've got special programs for you, music from around the world. We've got some new programs that have never been heard on EWTN ever uh, that'll make their debut this year. So do check it out. The 48 Hours of Christmas starting Christmas Eve morning at midnight (laughs) only on EWTN Radio. Here's a question now from Scott watching us on YouTube today. 
Are we supposed to try and bring Protestants to the Catholic Church or just let them be? Um, Yeah, thanks. So, you know, Christ says that we are to be salt, we are to be light, we are to let our good deeds shine before men so that they can give glory to our Father who's in heaven. And so, you know, we're also to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. When I'm interacting with Protestants, my objective is uh, not to proselytize them. I don't want to try to coerce them into the Catholic Church, come what may, no matter you know, no matter what or how, any means possible. I don't have that attitude. But I would like that I, I would like my own Catholic faith to be as beautiful and intelligible and as attractive as possible so that someone who encountered me in my Catholicism might be drawn to the Catholic faith. I want what trusting, he's got. Yeah. yeah, trusting that the God and the Holy Spirit will get the job done. Now, that, that doesn't mean that I can't actively evangelize or, or, yeah. or, or even attempt to persuade. I, I can do that. Um, but it's the disposition with which I do it. You know, before I was Catholic, when I was a Protestant, I really felt like it was a, my moral duty to make as many people like me as possible. And so I was kind of like a spiritual Amway salesman. You know, <laughs> I, I always had this objective of trying to win a convert at every turn. And uh, I think, you know, God has been gracious to me in that now as a Catholic, I've, I've been effective in helping people become Catholic. And a lot more people have become Catholic, you know, that I've engaged with than I ever made Protestant. Mm. But the interesting thing is I'm a lot less worried about it now. Like, I, because I'm not so exercised about, I've got to make that guy Catholic no matter what, I think I'm a better evangelist for it, you know, because if people feel coerced by you, they typically recoil, they push back, you know. But if I let it be known that, hey, you know, this is between you and God, this is your conscience, but I'll tell you what I believe and why, and I'll even tell you if you really want to know, I'll tell you why I think you're wrong. But, I'll, I mean, I, but really it's up to you to become Catholic or not. I mean, I had a close relative one time that asked me the question, should I become Catholic? And see, the thing is, I didn't think this person was going to become Catholic, no matter what I said. I thought, I, I was pretty sure that, that he wouldn't, that there was an insuperable barrier that would keep this, it was a family matter that would keep this person out of the church. Uh-huh. So I wasn't going to say, no, you shouldn't become Catholic. I'm not about to say that. But neither did I want to say, yeah, you have to become Catholic, because I didn't want to load his conscience with something that I didn't think he was capable of fulfilling. So instead I said, you know what I do. <laughs> I get on the radio and I talk about the Catholic faith. You know what I believe. You've heard my reasons. I leave it up to your conscience. That person did eventually become Catholic. Kind of takes the pressure off, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. All right. Very good. And uh, thanks so much for your question, Scott, watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Chris in Houston sent us this email. Tom and Dr. Anders, thanks for your wonderful show. I have a question about Luke 6.29, which says, To the person who strikes you on one cheek, Offer the other one as well. And from the person who takes your cloak, do not withhold even your tunic. Now, many translate that as Christians should willingly accept endless assaults without defending themselves. However, over the years, many people, including a few Catholic clergy, have told me this is incorrect. Apparently, in the time of Jesus, it was dishonorable to hit a person with the back of your hand. So if you, quote, turned the other cheek, the other person could only strike you with the back of their hand. Similarly, it was dishonorable to take everything from a person and leave them naked or without a tunic. Thus, Jesus was essentially saying, do not retaliate against those who hurt you, but stand up for yourself. So is this background and interpretation accurate? No. 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 All right. Uh, so there's something else going on here. 
Jesus says a lot of extreme things. He says that you have to hate your father and your mother and your very own life if you want to be his disciple. He says if someone forces you to go with him one mile, go with him too. Mm. He says you shouldn't just love those who love you, you should love those who hate you. I mean, there's, there's really no shading the extremism of Jesus's affirmations. They're really quite strong. And, of course, his uh, frame of reference is eschatological. He says, look, the kingdom of God is here. Uh, the things of this world are passing away. This is a, a radical commitment to be on God's side, and it might cost, you know, the ultimate. Now, when it comes to living that ethic out in real time, uh, you know, the— uh, the teaching of Jesus, we read it within the context of the entire scriptures and the whole Catholic tradition. And what the church has, has in her wisdom, decided on, has settled on, has taught, is that it is not necessary for every individual Catholic to divest themselves of all material wealth, for example, right? Um, it is not necessary for you to step in front of, uh, you know, of all speeding bullets, right? It is not necessary to you for you to allow yourself to be defrauded at every turn, However, there are people in the Catholic faith for whom that is the right choice in a specific circumstance, right? Um, so a Catholic religious, for example, take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. They, they, they take the words of Christ very, very, very literally and very seriously. Francis of Assisi was a man who said, you know what, I'm going to live the ethic of Christ as it stands, as the man on the street would understand his words, without qualification. And he did, and, and uh, he changed the world. It is literally impossible for society to be made up of nothing but Francis of Assisi's. Uh, you, you couldn't, I mean, you, you could never build a road, yeah. right, if everybody was Francis of Assisi. And yet there's a place in the church for Francis of Assisi, a tremendous place for him. Um, but uh, we, you have to live this ethic within, uh, according to your state of life. So you'll note that Jesus doesn't say these same radical things to everyone. So to the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 12, he says, one thing you lack, sell everything you have, come and follow me. But to the Gerasene demoniac who wants to do that, Jesus says, no, go back to your family. Mm. So there's a context, all right, there's a vocation that's personal, and you have to know where you fall in that category. If you're a married man, uh, to divest yourself of all personal property would be immoral because you would become incapable of caring for your children. And St. Paul says if a person doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an infidel. Yeah. Right? Um, so the Holy See, the, the, the Magisterium of the Church, uh, Leo XIII and Raum Navarum says that it, is, uh, that it is a matter of natural law, a matter of natural right, that laborers should be able to acquire property and invest so they can take care of themselves and their progeny in retirement and things of that sort. Mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So, so uh, Jesus does use this language— in a straightforward way. There's not some trick of first century life that explains away the, the, the radicality, um, the, uh, but it has to be contextualized within your vocation within the Christian life. Very good. Thanks so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from Michael, who says, I'm writing my doctoral dissertation on the Counter-Reformation, particularly on St. Robert Bellarmine. More than once, you have mentioned that primitivism has a root in Pope St. Gregory VII. I find this point convincing and would like to include it in my dissertation. Do you know of a particular source that makes this claim, or at least details how Gregory applied the Cluniac reform to general church reform? God bless, Michael. Okay, gosh. Um, 
Yeah. So have you ever looked at Herbert Grundmann's book, The Religious Movement of the of the Middle Ages? Mm. Uh, that's one. How about how about Stephen Osment's book, The Age of Reform? Um, John Bossie's uh, uh, Christianity in the Middle Ages. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, gosh, it, you know, we're, this is it's been 20 years since I did this research. <laughs> I'm trying to come up with the texts, yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, you've given three sources right there. Yeah, so Steve Osment, Steve Osment's Age of the Reform. I mean, that's that's a that's a secondary work, but he's going to give you the primary source reference. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. It's on the tip of my tongue. Ah, Francis. No, it's what Francis. Okay, Francis Oakley is one. Um, oh, I'll come up with some more. I'm, so I'm, this is. I, I, I would have. Once upon a time, I would have been able to give you like fifteen books on this topic. But like I said, it's been twenty years, and now this is kind of a one of those jeopardy yeah, moments for me to try yeah. to see if I can jog my memory. We're going to go out with this one from Kevin. Do we know how old was Mary when she bore Jesus, and how old was she when she died? Um, no and no, but the uh, you know the common opinion is that Mary would have been a young girl when she became pregnant. You know, Teens, like something along the age of fourteen, early, probably okay. that'd be likely. You know, I mean, in the ancient world, uh, kids growing up in in Bethlehem and Nazareth would not have gone to school, um, and uh, most women had to start bearing children as soon as they were biologically capable of it, just to maintain the population. So that'd be the common age. Okay. Sounds good. And uh, we thank you so much uh, for that email, for all the emails, for all the phone calls that we've received today. And uh, we had some great participation from people watching us on YouTube, people checking us out on Facebook. Try to cover the waterfront here on EWTN Radio. Dr. David Anders, have a wonderful weekend. Thanks, Tom. Don't forget, we do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio. We are live for you at 2 p.m. Eastern just about every day of the week. Check out the podcast. Charles will have that posted for you a little bit later on this afternoon at EWTN.com slash radio. Once you're there at EWTN.com slash radio, look for the words Podcast Central. Click on that, scroll down till you get to Call to Communion, and there you go. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. We want you to have that great weekend as well. We'll see you next week here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great weekend. God bless.